Hour number two of Canuck Central is presented by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned VC company helping local business since 1892. We're going to get uh, more into the uh, NHL entry draft with Scott Wheeler here in uh, just a couple of moments. We're talking about Valeri Nachushkin uh, coming out of that last segment. Uh, he has been quite the player and quite the find for the Colorado Avalanche. But uh, as we are talking draft, it is kind of interesting how uh, the Avs haven't really been a team that struck gold in the draft. I mean, they did on a lot of their high picks, right? Rantanen was 10th overall. I mean, that's a big hit for the 10th mm-hmm. overall pick. Um, now they have Byram at 4th overall, McCarr at 4th overall, McKinnon 1st, Landeskog 2nd. So they had a lot of high picks over the last 10 years that have really hit for them. But mm-hmm. beyond that, they really haven't hit much in the draft. And usually you see a... A Stanley Cup contender, a juggernaut, hit on on some later round picks, at least with some guys that are helping them out lower down the lineup. Yeah, and you know what they've been able to do is hit on trades. They've hit on their top draft picks, and they've made some great signings. Like look at the Nichuskin one, like you kind of mentioned. But it, it's like no team's going to be perfect at the draft table. Yeah, and no team's going to be perfect in his team build. I mean, who is like how many teams are Tampa? Yeah, where they hit everything everywhere, <laughs> and they've had some misses up high, but yeah. Throughout, I mean, they, they sign undrafted free agents that turn out to be stars. They make trades that work out. Their high picks work out. Their second-round picks work out. I mean, they're a unicorn. But Colorado, you're not going to hit on everything, but they hit on enough of the big things. They hit on the ones they, they needed to hit on. If you compare that to the Canucks, you know, missing on Vertanen, missing on Ulevi, those are ones that really sting uh, when you're going through a bit of a rebuild. Uh, let's bring in our next guest. It is... Scott Wheeler uh, joining us, uh, covering the draft at The Athletic. Thanks for this, Scott. We were just kind of talking about the Avalanche and, and their team build, and while they have hit on on a lot of high-end picks, uh, they, they haven't exactly uh, done much in the later rounds of the, draft, of the draft, at least in recent years, which is kind of surprising for a team that is built so well. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, I think the true test of how they've built this team has been through their pro scouting department. They've mm-hmm. done an unbelievable job finding, whether it was Lekkonen from Montreal or signing Nachushkin when others weren't willing to sign Nachushkin. I mean, Nachushkin's about to go from two and a half million bucks a year to five, six million dollars a year with the way he's playing. So they've done a really good job finding those guys around the edges, those complimentary, and I wouldn't even call Lekkonen or, or Nachushkin edge pieces, but those complimentary pieces that can make a difference. And a lot of that's been done through their pro scouting department, their amateur scouting department. I mean, you touched on the success at the top, certainly Alex Newhook, Bowen Byram, th- those are important players and have become important players for them. But by the same token, uh, Martin Kaut isn't involved in this group, and he was a first recent first-round pick who just hasn't really panned out after a few years. And uh, you go down the list. It hasn't been a huge uh, sort of overhaul through the draft in the way that it, that it often is for a lot of the teams that are now competitive. And uh, I think that speaks to the job that they've done with free agents and, and trades. Well, you know, you know, the interesting thing about all that is it, it gives you some hope of a fan of a different team that's not perfect, that you can still get there without being perfect, because you can't be Tampa. Like, who's Tampa? Really, right, Scott? I mean, what team can do everything? We were talking about what can you learn from these two teams if you're Vancouver in the Cup Final, and what do you learn from Tampa to be perfect at almost everything? It's a <laughs> unicorn. You can't replicate it. But I think what, with Colorado, it shows that every team is flawed and has a lot of flaws, but there are ways to overcome it if you hit on stars. 
No question. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the way that Tampa's done this, particularly with Point and Kucherov finding them where they did, uh, that's just unheard of. They had to do the tank. They had to get Victor Hedman and Steven Stamkos through the draft and through picking very highly. But at the end of the day, the, the guys who moved the needle for them, the guys that pushed them from good team to contending team to dynasty were, were Kucherov and Braden Point. And that's uh, just a job well done at the draft table. That's just beating everybody. It's finding market inefficiencies. It's tapping into talent that others weren't tapping into. Uh, and it's exposing some of the some of the biases that exist around the league with point. It was the belief that a s- sort of small, um, below average skater, which is actually ironic considering he's one of the better skaters in the sport now, uh, but a small below average skater couldn't be uh, an NHL star, even as productive as he was that year. I mean, he didn't, uh, maybe that draft goes differently today with what we know of data and how teams are leaning into it, even in drafting prospects, but uh, you wouldn't see a, a 90, 95 point player dr- drafted in the third round anymore. That's just not the reality of how teams are approaching the job. Um, but by the same token, we're still seeing some of those same mistakes repeated years and years later where we still see who are the guys around the league that are impressing relative to where they were drafted. It's Samuel Girard, another kid who's in uh, in Colorado. It's Alex Debrinkit. Those are the kids that really move the needle. Uh, if we did a redraft of last year's draft, the player who would probably go much higher uh, relative to where he was slotted, the number one sort of riser in the 2021 draft is a five foot nine defenseman named Olin Zellweger, who the Anaheim Ducks drafted in the second round and was arguably the best player after Connor Bedard in the WHL this season. So. Uh, again and again, those those sort of smaller types or players like a Kucherov that are uh, were drafted for the wrong reasons, and there were concerns about him uh, going over to the QMJHL and whether he would actually get over to the QMJHL and stay over here, and yada 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 yada. So you go down the list, and they just figured it out in Tampa, and it's a, a real credit to that group. And uh, I'm sure Steve Eiserman is watching from afar in Detroit, still very proud of what he accomplished in Tampa, but also. Uh, jonesing to to have those Stanley Cup rings as well. You mentioned something um, there that kind of caught my ear a little bit. Uh, teams are leaning more into data as they evaluate prospects. Um, how has that evolved uh, from from how you've seen it over the last couple of years? And and what are the best predictors from a data perspective towards projecting prospects? Oh, well, it's it's still in a bit of a renaissance. These last few years have been big for that. I just completed my scout survey this morning, and that'll be out in a couple of weeks, kind of right before the draft. And it used to be that I, when I would conduct my scout survey in advance of every draft, I would speak to, let's say there's 20 people that I speak to, 15, 16 of them would be amateur scouts, and three or four of them would be team analyst types who are working in some kind of a data analysis video role on behalf of teams and scouting the NHL draft, but not technically amateur scouts. And this year, I was funny, I was typing all of the answers up today, and about 50% of the people that I spoke to for a quote-unquote scout survey weren't even technically NHL scouts. So increasingly, almost every team in the league has two or three analysts working in a full-time role, breaking down data and video uh, in ways that their amateur scouting department doesn't. And that's becoming a big piece of the puzzle. And it's it's part of the reason that there have been recent hires 
uh, not just recent hires, but really over the last four or five years, several hires in, in Vancouver to do exactly that. There is a small group of people in Vancouver now that are doing that kind of work. So uh, it that's a league-wide thing. Everybody's got, almost everybody's got a department like that now of four or five people that are just working. They do other things throughout the course of the year on the data side as well, but a big piece of the data side at every NHL club now is also mapping out and projecting these players and using everything that's available. Increasingly, some of the scouting services that teams use do a good job of manually uh, or or sort of automating tracking of time on ice for the leagues that don't do it. Uh, All of the leagues over in Europe track time on ice themselves, but uh, obviously the CHL and NCAA and some of the leagues over here don't do that. So that's happening now so that you can take the data a step further than you've previously been able to take it time on ice really allows you not just to measure how much a player is out there, but really allows you to crunch the data and uh, project in, in significantly different ways than, than without it. Uh, so there's, there's tons of that happening. And then even, even in the public sphere, there's people like Will Scouch, uh, Byron Bader, uh, mm. people that uh, many readers are now familiar with online who are either doing manually tracked games themselves like will scouch does or have built models like what byron has done to project these players forward into different categories and uh they those some of those models including byron's are are quite successful so Mm -hmm. uh there there are a myriad of ways to watch and evaluate these kids now and that's that can only be good for the sport and for scouting uh, Scott Wheeler, the athletic, is our guest, and you know it, it's interesting because we've seen a few of those uh, those types of individuals get jobs as well. I mean, Ryan Beach in Vancouver was doing a lot of that sort of stuff. Now he works with the Canucks, and you know Yannick Saint Pierre, who's doing a lot of that stuff, works with the Montreal Canadiens as well. So we've seen a lot mm-hmm. of those people work move their way into uh, National Hockey League scouting. Now, uh, when it comes to the 2022 NHL entry draft, your latest mock draft has been published up on the site, and I got super excited, Scott, when I saw who you had the Canucks picking at number. 15 because it's different from what we've heard recently so walk us through why you think uh, Swedish left winger Liam Ogren uh, makes sense for Vancouver at that spot well it's almost ironic and I kind of wrote this in the piece but it's a little ironic that we're talking about what the future looks like for Brock Besser and here I am picking the kid in the draft class who looks closest (laughs) in style and substance and skill to exactly what Brock Besser already is but that's that's kind of what Liam Ogren is. He's a stocky winger who can really shoot the puck. He plays a pretty versatile offensive game, but the shot is is the bigger asset. He's got he's still got good hands. He can still make plays. He's very athletically mature. Uh, I mean, I bumped into him a few times and had a couple of conversations with him both at the combine in Buffalo and over in Germany for U18 Worlds. And he's he's one of those kids who's just sort of ripped and shredded and ha- has that piece of the puzzle which Brock also had at the same age. Um, and just plays a, a sort of scoring game. But there's a little bit of power. There's a little bit of finesse. There's a little bit of everything. I think he uh, fits really nicely, both as a potential target for the Canucks relative to what they already have in their pool and just in that range. He, he's a kid that makes a lot of sense in that sort of 15, 14, 15, 16, 17 range. I think that's where Ogren will go. And I suspect that he's a kid that this department both – that sort of analytics department that I talked about with how productive he's been. And then also just the sort of amateur scouting department with the Canucks and the way they tend to go about doing business. He just feels like a bit of a natural fit uh, for, for them and in that range. And he's not alone. I, I like Pavel Mintyukov and a couple of other players potentially for the Canucks. Uh, but Ogren was the name I kept coming back to. Well, we know Patrick Alvin is drafting the Swedes, so... 
<laughs> with the, with the amount of Swedes they've added to the the organization over the last little while, Philip Johansson and uh, Nicholas Amon as well. Uh, it's yep. it's uh, it's just a foregone conclusion. I'm starting the narrative now. Canucks are drafting a Swede at 15, uh, whether it's Ogren or somebody else. Uh, all kidding aside, you know the, we know the Canucks have a, a need on defense. And hey, in the first round, obviously you don't necessarily want to be drafting for need. It should always be best player available. But we've heard them in Tukovs and, and, and some of those names. Saw you have uh, Ryan Chesley uh, at 18 to the Dallas Stars. A uh, bit of a higher selection than, than maybe we've seen him elsewhere. In, this in your mock. But w- is that kind of the right shot defenseman that would be available to the Canucks at 15 should they want to go that route? That does feel a little high. Even 18 felt a little high for me when I took him for the stars in my mock. But in saying that, and I mentioned this in the piece, he is has a much greater sort of universal respect amongst private sphere sort of NHL scouts than amongst folks like myself who do the work publicly. I'm a big fan of, of Ryan Chesley, and he really actually grew on me as this year progressed. But in, in most people in the sort of on the public list uh, if you pay close attention to them, have him kind of in the 30s uh, or, or maybe late 20s. Uh, but I, I do expect he's going to go higher than that. Just off the conversations I've had with people, he was an assistant captain at the program this year, lead by example type, big, strong, long kid who can skate and really shoot the puck. He didn't play predominantly on on their two power play units there. Lane Hudson and Seamus Casey played on their units on the back end and He's certainly capable of running a power play and has a big point shot and can manage the blue line and would have been more productive at the program this year if they were a little bit weaker on defense and he was allowed to play in a more prominent role there. But at even strength, he was a star for them. Played right on that top pairing pretty much all year and really settled into a nice groove with Lane Hudson. And they played a lot. He ate up minutes. Really good sort of neutral zone defender, great stick, long, just defends very well and plays a pr- just a, with a presence about him. Plays a very confident, commanding style. Uh, not, not sort of the dynamic end-to-end creative type, but just plays a very poised, commanding style out there that a lot of teams, I think, are drawn to and on top of the leadership qualities and the size and all of that as well. So just feels like the kind of guy who's going to be a, a really solid second pairing defender uh, long term. Maybe not the high end, high end upside offensively, mm-hmm. uh, but he, he, I think fifteen might be a little early for Chesley. But maybe maybe he's a guy they they start talking about if they move back or that mm-hmm. kind of a thing starts to take place. Yeah, I mean, if you move back and get into the twenties, even and he's still available, then it becomes a really interesting value. I'm with you there. Uh, and you know, in the event of the Canucks trading back, uh, and you know. I think they're going to really try to get a defenseman if possible, but they're going to look at the best value or best talent, obviously. And one player that I'm curious about, and Dan was joking about the Canucks and Swedish players, but he's another Swede, Noah Oslin, the centerman, who hasn't been a lot of buzz about him, but talk to some people in Sweden, I know that scout, they say, hey man, keep an eye on this kid, he can be really good. I've spoken to scouts in the NHL that really like him. Is he one of those kind of quiet guys that could end up going a bit higher than people are anticipating? Definitely. I think people see him, they see that he scored nine goals this year and they immediately start to wonder, okay, he's a slight five foot ten, five foot eleven centerman who didn't score goals. And then you start to ask questions. And I think if you dig a little bit deeper on Noah, the first thing you learn is that a, he played with two of the best trigger men in Swedish junior hockey this year on that, on that Jurgardens team with Ogren and Lekaramaki. So part of it was just him 
playing to his strengths and playing to his playmaking and hanging onto the puck through neutral ice and then dishing whenever he could to, to sort of facilitate. So he just got to play setup man for those two all year. And they were obviously dynamic. Uh, we haven't seen a line like that in, in the J20 level in a long time. Uh, and he, that was just the role that he played. And then I think as the year sort of went along and he got really comfortable and, and sort of started to feel himself again, then you really saw the best of him at U18 Worlds, where not only was he arguably their most important player, they had a sort of center depth issue when Leo Carlson got injured early on in the tournament, and they were rolling three centers for much of the tournament. And he, he, was, the, he was the guy that they were double shifting. He was the guy who was the face-off specialist. He was the guy who was out there on the penalty kill, last minute of games. Uh, he really did it all for them at both ends of the ice. And I think people are really very impressed not just with the slick playmaking puck on his stick style that he plays. He has that slick quality that you expect out of a sort of light, airy, uh, smooth skating, five foot 11 player. But on top of that, just a really smart, responsible, uh, solid two-way center who is excellent in the face-off circle as well. So uh, there's a lot to like about Noah. I think everybody looks at those three and, Mm-hmm. sees the, the sort of dynamic quality of Lekhermaki, the true sniper, and then that sort of power-finesse combo that Ogren has, and, and he can become a little bit of the third-string guy in that group, but he absolutely belongs as a first-rounder. I think all three of those guys are going to be first-rounders, uh, and it would, would not surprise me in the least if Noah Oslin's taken in the teams. Uh, maybe not at 15, but uh, I don't think 18-19 is completely out of the question whatsoever for Noah. And he, he's a very fun player to watch. Mm-hmm. But also, as I kind of alluded to, that that sort of defensive defensive conscience is there as well. Yeah, he's totally one of those guys I'm I'm, I'm really excited to see what happens with because he seems very intriguing. Final one uh, before we let you go, Scott. We appreciate your time. How big of a steal is it going to be if Danila Yurov is going to be there in the mid-20s, actually? I think there's a real chance it happens. Just in speaking with with clubs, uh, I I think about a third of teams are just going to pass on the Russians altogether. A third will probably take them a little bit lower than they normally would, and a third are kind of approaching it as if it's any other year and are are comfortable that they think they're going to be able to get those guys over here and not have issues. Uh, So a bit of a mixed bag, but ultimately, obviously, that mixed bag is going to produce some kind of fall for all of them. I think you'll still see Yurov, who's, Clearly the number one Russian prospect in this draft class, especially now that Ivan Mirishnichenko has unfortunately been diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, you're going to see Yurov fall. The question is how far. And I think because he's a winger, it, it even complicates it further as teams inevitably draft the centers uh, and feel the urge to draft the centers and the defensemen at the very least. So if he's available in the 20s and you can get him over here and even if it's not next year or the year after, if you can get him over here in three years or, or whatever it may be, uh, that's a, a, a cut worth taking. Uh, the other complication is obviously that these kids weren't at the combine. The lasting impressions that a lot of the kids from North America, Finland, Sweden, Czech Republic, et cetera, et cetera, uh, th- those kids are going to be lingering on people's minds. Well, even, if it, even if they're trying to sort of put the combine out of their heads or any of that uh it's inevitable that the kids that they spoke to the kids they were impressed with the combine if there's another kid on your list that you fell in love with at the combine uh, maybe you just take that kid over your and your starts to fall so uh certainly a top 10 top 15 talent without question but if he's available in the 20s and there's a team that's comfortable taking him i suspect that team will be a team that's already got a deep pool so i look at 
identify. Uh, the, the LA Kings, for example, at 19, the LA Kings have the deepest prospect pool in hockey, maybe by a wide margin. Potentially the Minnesota Wild, who've built themselves a really strong pool. Uh, the Minnesota Wild could take him at tw- in the 20s. So uh, th- there are a few teams like that. There's obviously, the teams with multiple picks, Arizona, et cetera, have multiple picks. So uh, that's where I think he'll probably land. And, and I think there's a real chance you've got a star if you're willing to play the waiting game and, and figure it out with him and get him over here eventually. Scott, we appreciate the time as always. Thanks for this. Cheers, guys. There is uh, Scott Wheeler covering the draft at The Athletic. Danila Yurov could uh, maybe be a uh, K- Kirill Kaprizov type in a couple of years. I mean, who knows? I mean, these are really talented players that are going to go a lot later than they should based on their talent. And if I was in charge of a team, yeah, I would be all about drafting these guys if they're there. I mean, I, if Yurov I, I'm was not... available at 15, should he go to the Canucks? It depends on who else is there. Right. Because, I, I mean, it could be a defenseman that makes more sense, position yeah. and all that sort of stuff. But... Absolutely consider him. Unless you have some character issues or something that, you know, we're not aware of that would lead like why why would you hold the sins of the leaders of his country or the yeah. leader of his country against these teenagers wanting to play hockey? Yeah. And if you're doing that, then you're shooting yourself in the foot potentially. Yeah. I'd be all for it. I mean, and it, it's 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 fascinating because if you're able to I'm I don't think it's gonna happen trading down. But let's say, for argument's sake, the Canucks trade down from 15 to 25, and they get an extra second-round pick out of it as well. You might be go down to the 20s. You get your off. You have a second. Go draft yeah. a Russian defenseman that's slid down all of a sudden, and then take another one in the third round. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, I'm joking, yeah. but I'm not. You know, like this could be a massive market inefficiency. And if teams are this reluctant to draft these guys, don't make the same mistake. Well, we've heard a, a lot of our prospect experts that have joined us say about a third of the league. That's really been the general consensus it seems yeah. that a third of the league is just saying no to players currently playing in Russia. And and I see the visa issues that come up and stuff like that and people are asking it too how do, how does that come in and that is going to be some sort of a complication but for a lot of guys I think that gets figured out and if and it's also something you have to think think about long term. If you're drafting somebody who's going to be 2 years away anyways, mm-hmm. a lot of things can change in 2 years. The world might be a different place in a couple of years. So those considerations for 18-year-olds that I'm drafting, I don't worry about too much. The the thing about trading down, um, you know, I do wonder with some of the teams that have multiple first-round picks and multiple second-round picks, right? Like if you're an Arizona or um, a Montreal, yeah. those types of teams that have multiples of both rounds, maybe they want to move up because there's a player they really like there at 15, but then you're moving outside of the top 25, right? You're moving... 25 yeah. at the lowest. So you got to feel pretty confident that you're still going to be able to find a player you like there at 25 because generally the probabilities of you hitting on a player at that spot is a lot lower than where you are at 15. And chances are that at 15, a player you like a lot is going to be there, especially yeah. in this draft. And we talked about this so much and you outlined it. There seems to be not a lot of consensus on that next tier outside the top six or so. And it can go anywhere to 2025, like you mentioned. And there are enough defensemen that one's probably going to be there. Now, I could easily see Mintikov because he's a defenseman go higher. I can see Matt Matejchuk go a little bit higher. But then Ryan Chesley's still there and other guys are still there. And I could ultimately see a run-on defenseman, maybe. And then somebody like a Chesley goes a bit higher than anticipated, like Wheeler outlined in his mock draft. It is uh, Canuck Central, Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. The Philadelphia Flyers... Look to be a very interesting team this offseason. They're closing in on signing John Tortorella as their new head coach. What could some of their offseason plans be? 
We'll get to that next on Canuck Central. Hour two of Canuck Central is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. If you missed hour one of the program, uh, you would have heard us talking about Andre Kuzmenko and uh, what signing him could mean for the Canucks in the rest of their offseason. Also a discussion around Jason Dickinson as a buyout candidate And could a J.T. Miller trade be akin to the Matt Duchesne trade that sparked the Avs turnaround a few years ago? David Pignota also joined us in Hour 1 of the program. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. It uh, has not yet been finalized, though everybody seems to know that John Tortorella is going to be the next head coach of the Philadelphia Flyers. And Jordan Hall is now joining us, covering the Flyers for NBC Sports Philadelphia. Thanks for this, Jordan. Uh, I I know it's not quite official yet, but I can't imagine a better fit for the Philadelphia Flyers' next head coach than John Tortorella. Absolutely. I think a lot of people in Philadelphia are excited about what he brings from a personality standpoint, a toughness standpoint. Um, I think a lot of people feel he has, you know, a flyer way to him. So, the city is all about um, hard work and being hard-nosed, and I think those are qualities that John Tortorella brings. So I think overall the city's pretty excited, but at the same time it's going to come down to the results, and that's what fans want to see most. Well, and, and that's the most interesting part about this to me for the Flyers because you don't hire John Tortorella if you're looking to take this long-term rebuild, rebuild approach. This is very much about getting off to a good start and having a strong season, isn't it? It absolutely is because – the Flyers haven't missed the playoffs in consecutive years since 92, 93, 94, 95. So they just did that these last two seasons. So it's been a while, and they're coming off one of the worst seasons in franchise history. So they're trying to elicit buzz and excitement again within its fan base. So who better than really John Tortorella, a guy that's known to get more out of less, a guy that's known to uh, get quick turnaround, get guys to buy in. So they're not looking at a long rebuild. They're looking at a retool, and they're trying to get better quicker. And uh, Tortorella is the guy that, you know, has a history of doing that. I think you're right. Uh, John Tortorella is not a whole lot different than Elaine Vigneault. Um, it'd be one thing if they were going with a younger coach that maybe is more of a development guy that's, you know, going to be here for five, six years, long picture. Uh, they're looking at now, and uh, Tortorella is going to come in and try to do that. Do you think management is making the right decision in betting on the talent they've assembled here, or and that a coach is the fix? Uh, like, I, I wonder how Philly fans feel about this team, not you know looking at the writing on the wall and saying, okay, maybe maybe we do need to take a step back here before we can take a couple of steps forward. The overall vibe among the fan base really is that it's not coaching because uh, they've just seen a coaching carousel now over the last five years, a decade. Uh, if you include the two interim head coaches, Tortorella is going to be the fifth coach in five years. The, the Flyers have a talent deficiency, and, and they know it too. Uh, Chuck Fletcher, the GM, admitted that they need to get more talented this all season. They need some of their young players, some of their prospects that they've drafted in the first round to take big strides because there's simply not enough talent here 
Uh, so they need better health, but they need better talent. So I, I think Chuck Fletcher is going to have a real active, aggressive all season because it, it's it's not solely on coaching. I mean, Elaine Vigneault's top eight and wins. He's been to the cup final twice. And he didn't even last a full season here because of COVID-19 and the, the, the way the team progressed after his first season. So it's it, it's not on coaching. It's going to be on being aggressive this offseason, shaking things up, and uh, and getting better from a personnel standpoint, not just coaching. Well, and, you know, there are a number of players who kind of stagnated the past couple of years with the Flyers. And the, and the one that I'm most interested in is Ivan Provorov, who's 25 years old, but it's been a couple of years since you know people have been excited about his his upside. Didn't work with Elaine Vigneault. Do you think he'll still be there for it to be tested with uh, um, John Tortorella? I think it's a fair question. Chuck Fletcher said everything's on the table this offseason, and, and I believe it. Um Ivan Provorov really hasn't been the same guy over the last two seasons. When they brought in Matt Niskanen in 2019-20, they were a great top pair, and Niskanen made Provorov a lot better. These next two seasons, the last, the next two seasons, they didn't have a top pair guy to play with Provorov. Uh, some of that was a byproduct of Matt Niskanen retiring, and then another byproduct of that was Ryan Ellis being hurt all of last season, other than four games. So. Some of it, I think, you know, Provorov needs some help. And then a lot of it, um, I think, is just pressure on his shoulders to, you know, be this top pair, do-it-all guy. I really do think management's going to look at everything. And the current regime didn't draft Ivan Provorov. That was the previous regime of Ron Hextall and Chris Pryor. So I don't think they're really tied to the hip with any of these players. I don't think anyone's really safe other than probably a handful I'm thinking Ivan Provorov will be back next season, but I wouldn't rule out a trade or anything. Um, I really do think everything's on the table, and that includes Ivan Provorov. Rasmus Ristolainen. How did you feel about the acquisition and then the subsequent contract extension after a uh, tough first season in Philly? Yeah, I, I think he brings an element to the Flyers that they've been missing over the last couple of years. And, you know, you look at the old cliche, like you, you need guys that are tough, brawl street bully type, but they definitely have lacked some toughness in your face type of guys. And I think what they were hoping all along was that Rasmus Ristolainen can maybe play more of a role. Uh, in Buffalo, he, he dealt with constant turnover. He was playing top pair minutes. And they were hoping not to shelter him, but have him more play a second pair, maybe fourth overall defenseman role. They just didn't have enough health. Uh, this season and there were times where he was playing out of position playing probably more minutes than he should have Uh, so the overall team suffered but if they they feel if they get the right coach in here and the proper amount of depth on defense they'll have the in-your-face Rasmus Ristolainen the effective in-your-face Rasmus Ristolainen a guy that's playing maybe lesser minutes than what he was in Buffalo so I think he can bring an element and he did ultimately take a pay cut with this new deal so I'm okay with it, uh, but still, he's a polarizing player. Some people love him. Some people don't among the fan base. Uh, I think this next season will be a lot more telling for him, uh, and I think he'll either win some guys over or, or lose some fans as well. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, right, it, that it's super interesting to see which players end up being guys they want to hold on to and work here because the thing with Tortorella, and we saw it here firsthand in Vancouver when he came in, 
And now it was an absolute disaster in so many different ways. And hopefully that's not the case uh, in Philly. Although I would say if it is a disaster, us watching from out from afar, it's always fun watching things burn from afar. And when you're not in it, and we've seen it happen a lot in Vancouver and others from the outside have looked in. And very much that was the case with Tortorella. But what becomes clear when Torts comes in, though, is who can stay and who can't. Like it becomes black and white. Like he's not going to hold on to a guy that he doesn't like or the team's not going to hold on to them. So in, in many ways, if you really want to find out who's going to work and who's not going to work, this will be the year, won't it, where it will shape what the future of this team looks like if they really are dedicated to holding on to Tortorella for a few years. I couldn't agree more. And, and some people questioned whether this team had enough accountability over the last two seasons. So I think one thing Tortorella is going to do is he's going to demand accountability. He doesn't care if you're a top pair defenseman or an extra defenseman. He doesn't care if you're a fourth liner or a first line center. He's going to demand accountability. And I think that's what not only management, but some of you know the Flyers' senior advisors that have been around for a while. I think everyone wanted to see a little more accountability here uh, and to kind of put people on their heels a little bit, let people know that he can't be comfortable, not after the way the last two seasons have gone, especially last year. I mean, no one should feel comfortable after a team going 25-46-11. They just weren't good enough. Uh, injuries played a factor, but I think Tortorell can certainly shake things up and uh, it won't just be management. It'll be the head coach, too, coming in and shake things up a little bit. How how much do you, do you think this Flyers team will do any, you know, big game hunting this offseason? Like, do you think they'll be in on trying to get a guy like JT Miller in Vancouver or something else? Like, do you see the Flyers being in on doing something big like that? I do. I think it's, it's very possible. I think they'll have to be creative, though. Um, they do have a lot of money committed. They it, When Sean Couturier's deal kicks in with, and Joel Farabee's deal kicks in, which they do this season. Uh, they'll have six forwards making five or more million uh, annually. And, and then with their D, they have 4D making over four million, and that's three of them making over five. So they do have a lot of money committed. Uh, but obviously, you know, you can make trades to create cap room and, and, and things of that nature. So I don't know if it'll be simply just going out on the free agent market and signing a guy. I think it's going to re- possibly require some trades. Uh, to clear cap in order to take on cap. But I do think they'll be aggressive, and I think they'll look at all avenues. Uh, you know, they're lacking. They have holes across the board. So they're they're going to look to maybe shore up their, you know, their, their depth on defense, and then they, they absolutely need offense. So I think they're going to look at a, a possible scorer. And a good way to certainly put Bucks back in seats is to, to make a splash uh, for a scorer. Uh, I think they're trying to – kind of reinvigorate their fan base a, a little bit. I think part of that was getting Tortorella, and a, another part of that will be going out and, and possibly getting a big name. Is Travis Konechny a Philadelphia Flyer next season? I'll say yes, but he's also another guy that I think could go either way. Um, he was drafted the same year as Provrov, again, not by this current regime. And he's taken uh, – his goal scoring's taken a dip. Um, he – finished as the team's leading scorer uh, point-wise, but that was kind of by default because the team traded Claude Drew and Cam Atkinson got hurt. Uh, so, again, a 25-year-old player with a ton of promise. He was an all-star in 2019-20 when the team was really good. Uh, but at the same time, I think management's trying to get the best read on it. And if you're going to get talent back in a trade, uh, you're going to have to part with good players. Uh, so I think management right now is trying to get a read on whether he's a cornerstone or possibly an asset to get players in return. I'll say yes, uh, but I certainly wouldn't rule it out. Hey, uh, Jordan, we really appreciate your time today. Thanks for this. 
Absolutely. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, there is Jordan Hall covering the Flyers for NBC Sports Philadelphia. Had to get the question in about Konechny, you, because you you've yeah. been on the Konechny thing for a while. and had to ask player, about, man. Yeah, no, I know. And I had to ask about Miller, because every time we have guests on from markets like this, we get tweets and, and text messages, people asking, hey, would they trade from JT? They like JT? <laughs> and that's a team that would, would, that, would it surprise you if they all of a sudden became a suitor for whether it's JT, whether it's, you know, Pasternak or whatever, like, would it shock you at all to see them go in big on a big name? Philly, absolutely not. That's their MO. It is absolutely their MO. And I look, they, they'll have ways to like open up cap space. Maybe they trade James Van Riemsdyke or something like that uh, to, to free up cap space there. They could trade Konechny. You know, if they were to make a Miller trade, maybe Konechny is a piece, right? Yeah, depending on how Vancouver views them. I mean, yeah. One thing we haven't talked about enough, and we've mentioned it as a possibility, and the reason futures is what makes most sense because you get the cap space and you need those long-term assets for the organization, but is a hockey deal in that sense out of the realm of possibility where you get a Konechny and you get a draft pick? Would be a fascinating type of mold, but still need long-term. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. And it doesn't help. Like It actually hurts your long-term cap flexibility Mm because now you're adding a $5.5 million charge for two years beyond what you're paying JT Miller. Yeah, and and if he's a if he turns out to be a front-line player, then he's worth it. But yeah. if he's just a second-line guy, you're paying him $5.5 I mean, it's not it's not cheap. Like, we were talking about Garland at 4.9. We're mm-hmm. like, does that make sense if you're paying, if he's only playing 15 minutes a game? I mean, if, and if you're connecting, he's playing 15 minutes a game. That's a lot, five and a half. Yeah, that could uh, could be an issue. But uh, his his uh, connection to Vancouver has always been there, being yep. uh, the cousin of Bo Horvat. <laughs> so um, we had to bring it up at some point just for the fun of it. So there's a lot of teams here, Sat, that are super interesting this offseason. We've already seen one trade, Vegas moves of Genny Dodonov for Shea Weber. Of the Montreal Canadiens, David Pignotta told us earlier in the show, and Kent Hughes said it today after talking about the trade, the GM of the Montreal Canadiens, we're not done. And we know Vegas is still going to get some work done. Philly wants to have a shakeup. The Devils want to move ahead. The Islanders don't want to sit outside of the playoffs for too long. That's Lou Lamorello's MO. So you've got a lot of players this offseason of teams wanting to change their fate as non-playoff teams. Mm -hmm. Vancouver is probably on the lower side of that because they've been very honest about wanting to be calculated in how they go about this offseason. It's not make or break for the playoffs next year. Yeah. They want to remain competitive, but it's clear it's we can't afford to keep Throwing bleep at the wall and seeing what sticks. Yes. Um, for lack of a better term. Which of those teams, which of the teams around the league is most intriguing to you this offseason? I mean, in many ways, it is Philly. Yeah. Because they have so many pieces that they actually have to move. They do have a lot of like intriguing young pieces that haven't really turned out yet. You yeah. Kind of like post-hype sleepers like... Uh, post-hype draft picks. Morgan Frost was a player I uh, I thought was going to have a better transition yes. to the NHL than he has had. 
Uh, obviously, Farabee has has turned out for them, but you know, even on the back end, you know, what do they do with Provorov? What do they do with uh, Travis Sanheim, who's a year out of unrestricted mm-hmm. free agency? Do they find a number that works for them? They've just got a lot of pieces that are super interesting, even though it seems like a team that is so far away from being a contender again. Yeah, and in in many ways, it could also be Vancouver, too, because there's so many, there are a couple big pieces. Yeah. You know? Well, Uh, Miller might be, there's a lot of pretty good players on the trade market this year, but like Alex Dabrinkit is is being uh, thrown around as a player that could get traded. But Miller, like how many... How many 100-point players, 99-point players get traded? Not very often. We've gone through that. Yeah. It's, it's not very often. And the deals for those types of players often don't end up working out all that great for the team trading those guys. Just yeah. generally speaking. There are you know a lot of hits, but if you go through the history of those trades, a lot of first-round picks that were nothing and the prospect being nothing. You know, like, it's funny because you go back and you look at a number of trades that have been made, and we, we talk about um, what you have to do, for instance— and like the Ryan O'Reilly trade, it worked out okay. Yeah. But was it what you really wanted it to be initially? Didn't. It, it wasn't exactly what you thought um, it would have been uh, if you're the Buffalo Sabres in that one. But for me, it's, it's not Philly. It's not Vegas. It's probably the New Jersey Devils. Hmm. I'm always intrigued by teams trying to make that leap into the postseason, right? That feel yeah. they're on the cusp of getting into the postseason. And that's a team that is being very honest about their second overall pick being potentially on the table in the right trade. Maybe they're willing to move their first-round draft choice for next year. And that always leaves a bit of intrigue because, as we talked about earlier in the show, is it lottery protected? Kind of like when Vancouver was had, had their first-round pick hanging in the balance with the Tampa Bay Lightning, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I think the New Jersey Devils, especially because their goaltending situation is so unsettled, like if they're going out and making moves to try and get better outside of the goaltending position – and they're still very like a very tricky team to project for next year. Well, I mean, they're a team that they could go out there and sign a Willie Huso, for instance. Yeah. And then he let's say he plays well for them. Yeah. And then make a trade for the second overall pick and get an impact player. Now you've had two ma- major additions to your team. Yeah. Plus you have Dougie Hamilton, Jack Hughes is getting a bit better, your younger guys. That's a dangerous team. That's a team that if they do those two things, that's team's gonna leap in and be a playoff team next year, or at least be very close to being one. So they have a huge way to go. I'll throw another team in there as far as very interesting. Winnipeg Jets. Mm. There's the potential of Shifley getting traded. Yeah. There's talk about Pierre-Luc Dubois not being keen on signing a long-term deal. Never heard that before (laughs) out of Winnipeg. (laughs) And hey, ultimately, you can make an offer to somebody and they say, okay, his dad's there too. So, you know, things can change. But what if that team decides, like, Shifley wants to go. They can't keep Dubois. They trade both those guys. And if you're doing that, maybe you just say, let's just trade Hellebuck too, whose name has been thrown out there. Now, all of a sudden, you're going into a deep rebuild if you're the Winnipeg Jets. And maybe that's what you decide to do. I mean, it, it kind of depends, I suppose. But, but is that a team... They have enough like really big pieces that it would be super interesting. The, yeah, because you still have so many good players. I mean, Wheeler's only got two years left. So if you can look at it and say, if we set ourselves up to take a run in 2023, 2025, from 2023 to 2025, 
Well, you're out of Wheeler in a year. Yeah. And you still have uh, Kyle Connor who's going to be 27 at that point, right? You still have Nikolai Ehlers, who's 27, has a couple of years remaining at that point. And you look at the back end, of course, with guys like Josh Morrissey. So if 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 they can't, if they decide to trade Shifley, maybe they decide to take that huge step back this year to try to retool again beyond that. It's, uh, there's a lot of teams and the off season is going to be fire, man. July 7th is uh, when the draft begins. And as we know, the lead up to the draft and definitely draft night and draft weekend tends to be where the most work gets done by NHL GMs leading into signing season. Uh, Sean from North Van. Yeah. Has one. I love trade proposals. Will you consider JT for Holtz and Severson? Maybe if we're pushing, we can ask for Walsh as well. Holtz and Severson, would you do that? No. Oh. Okay, yes. Um, a third piece. Like, I want to pick. If you, I mean, Severson, Severson's good. essentially, like, he's he's a rental, though. He's yeah, a, he's, he's one a, year. He's in the same situation that JT Miller yeah. is in. There's no, there's no upside in, say, Severson outside of a year. Yeah, so that's why my initial reaction is no. I'd want to pick. Like, if Holtz, you're doing I that. really like. Yeah. I'd still like a first-round pick. Maybe it's not this year's first which is second overall, and that's tough to give up. But I would take probably a lottery-protected first. Yeah. Like, even if it was just Holtz and a lottery-protected first for next year. Maybe, maybe. maybe you think about it. Holtz, you know, depends on how you view him, but he has a lead upside. He's a winger, yeah. but he has a lead upside. He's a really interesting player, Alex Holtz is. Uh, was about a point a game in the A this year. So one that would be a pretty significant piece to get back in a JT Miller trade i wouldn't do the debrusque and unprotected first for miller though like the other person asked i wouldn't do that no it would be interesting given Connor bedard and how many players are injured right now for the boston bruins yeah but that's a big that's a big big lottery ticket you're yeah scratching. it's a huge lottery ticket you're scratching on what at best an 18 percent chance yeah at the first overall if pick. they're that bad yeah. it might be bad are they that bad they won't and be that. then you get yeah. it on the pick. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a little bit too much of a lottery ticket. Bet on hockey like never before with Play Now Sports, your local BC sportsbook. Game two of the Stanley Cup final isn't until Saturday night, but you can already get in your early plays over at playnow.com. Tampa Bay, the underdog, paying $2.35 on the money line. And now $3.30 for the series. So if you liked Tampa Bay going in, maybe now is your time to get in on them for the series at playnow.com.